liberals love to accuse conservative Christians of like being too political. In my experience, I don't think that we're political enough. Depending on how you determine the size and scope of how many evangelicals there are in America, let's say that the percentage is upwards of 25%, as some sociologists think. If that's the case, we are arguably the greatest potential political block in the United States. And the fact that we haven't been able to shift the Overton window like we ought to be able to is an indication that actually Christians are not that engaged, as is often the stereotype. Welcome to Christ Overall, a podcast dedicated to helping the church see Christ as Lord and everything else under his feet. My name is David Schrock, and today we are taking another step in our investigation of Christian nationalism. All month long, we are invoking the unassuming style of Peter Falk's Columbo to ask just one more thing about Christian nationalism. We are sitting down with the key voices for and against Christian nationalism, and we're seeking to hear what they have to say about the subject, what Christian nationalism is, what it is not, why it is good or why it is not. And over the course of these dozen or so interviews, our prayer is that God would give more light than heat to this important subject. Next month, we will begin sorting out some of these claims. But today, we're sitting down with ethics professor and author Andrew Walker to discuss Christian nationalism. So Andrew, welcome to Christ Overall. Hey, thanks, Dave. Thanks, Steve. Good to be with you. Glad you're here. And Steve, how are things at Southern Seminary? Oh, they're doing fine and uh, looking forward to the conversation with Andrew. Well, hey, is there much conversation about Christian nationalism going on on campus right now? You know, that's a good question. I don't sense that it's like a pressing issue that's like, you know, defining the moment. I think it's predominantly an online conversation, which is definitely significant, and it's it's percolating in people's minds. But I haven't gotten the sense at Southern that it's everything that people are, are talking about. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. Uh, I think if you have individual conversations just about what's going on in the country and politics and so on, you have that, but not like you're seeing on on the online format. Yeah, it's a good reminder. We talked about that in another episode recently, that there's a lot more conversation going on on Twitter than in face-to-face places. But because it is there, and that does influence the way that people and pastors are thinking about this, it's worth our, our conversation. So maybe, Andrew, just to kind of get the ball rolling, you wrote a review of Stephen Wolf's book. I wonder if there's been any follow-up with him about that. No, I haven't had any one-on-one conversation or feedback from Stephen about the piece, if my memory serves me correct. In fairness to him, you know, I'm critiquing his book as a Baptist. Mm -hmm. And one thing I will say that I appreciate about Stephen, because he's he's spoken in the past commendably about me, because I have been, as a Baptist, pretty clear about the fact that though Baptists find themselves in the Protestant and Reformed tradition— I don't think that we should find ourselves in the magisterial tradition when it comes to church and state matters. And so I've been trying to be very clear with kind of Baptist voices, like, hey, we're Baptists. That means we're not Lutherans or Presbyterians or Anglicans when it comes to matters of church and state. So I I really haven't had much back and forth with Stephen in particular. 
That's fair. Yeah, I think that's an important piece, though, just thinking about this discussion. There's certainly lots of different angles, but the the church polity issue is certainly one of them, and that's going to relate to how we as Baptists relate to the state. And certainly there can be easy confusion when you read a compelling book from someone who is outside of your tradition, and there are things you can appreciate about that. But then if you kind of smuggle in some of the, the church polity, it doesn't exactly match unless you begin to change some of the ways that you view the church. Correct. Maybe more just generally, Andrew, you also wrote a piece called What Does Christian Nationalism Even Mean? Where you begin to kind of just think through the definitions of that and really ask for people to kind of give better proposals for what does this actually mean? Not just looking back at history, but what are you wanting to do today? That piece was in the World News Group, I think at the end of last year. Have you gotten any feedback on that or have you seen that conversation materialize in any helpful ways? So, you know, that, that piece, and I'm not trying to tout my work or pat myself on the back, um, <laughs> that, that piece was pretty well received, and I had received a lot of really encouraging feedback from people that had been reading it on Capitol Hill, because the, the main point of that piece was to kind of lovingly challenge all sides on this issue. And I, I think, you know, one of the frustrating elements in the Christian nationalism discussion that's going on right now is... Helpfully, it's a conversation amongst conservative Christians who all share similar beliefs around urgent matters of prolegomena and and theological principle. But I think it can also distract a lot of good conservative Christians as well about getting hung up on entailments and kind of granular delineations, when in reality, we all share a lot in common about wanting to see the re-Christianization of the social order there's the question of how do we go about doing that? And so rather than kind of setting ourselves against each other and lighting each other on fire, we should understand we all stand opposed to abortion. We all stand opposed to Obergefell. We're really talking about the mechanisms or the vehicles to accomplish that desired goal that we all have, which is the re-Christianization of the world, but in particularly in our context of, of Western order itself. Yeah, that's helpful. Andrew, if you were to define Christian nationalism, how, how would you define it? Or how would you understand it best today? Yeah, thanks for that. I do kind of define this in a unique way, and I define it particularly along the grounds of establishmentarianism. And to me, Christian nationalism comes to fruition in its most precise, visible form in the state adopting the church or the Christian religion as its official church or its official religion. I stand opposed on theological principle to establishmentarianism as a legal reality, and that's important. We're talking about de jure realities. Um, So on legal grounds, I reject Christian nationalism, but when we talk about de facto realities and cultural realities— I absolutely want civil society infused with the leaven of the gospel and with the leaven of the biblical witness. So in reality, my criticisms are very narrowly focused about the apparatus of government itself, not just magistrates, but the apparatus of government and the apparatus of political judgment fusing itself to the Christian church or a Christian denomination, or a Christian confession. Outside of de jure realities, I think that I would have pretty much everything that there is to have in common with other people who would be willing to wear the label of Christian nationalist. Um, I'm not willing to wear that label for myself, 
Um, I would prefer myself to be a champion of what I would call Christian democracy, because democracy is speaking to a republic, a broader people, uh, a, a moral ecology, not just the narrow apparatus of government itself. So, Andrew, with that, when a government, you know, if you want to Christianize, we're going to enforce or at least encourage certain moral norms upon a society. Uh, obviously, in different worldviews and different religions, they have they don't always have the same moral norms. So that if we are applying Christian moral standards, and then we can get into what you would consider those those standards to be, are we not in some sense saying we're applying Christian values? We may not be making legal or, or establishing a specific denomination or church, but in some sense, we're bringing Christianity to bear in the nation. I mean, how would you yeah. distinguish that? No, so I mean, at an, at an ultimate level, all true morality has to emanate from our understanding of Christianity. The question that I, I want to kind of very carefully delineate is those matters of revelation. Uh, and so when we're thinking about, I mean, I, I, I'm very heavily indebted in my theological thinking here to Calvin's duplex cognito day, that there's a, a, a twofold knowledge of God. There's a knowledge of God, the creator, and a knowledge of God, the redeemer. And I do think that all true moral claims that every single person understands as true, those ultimately emanate from a true knowledge of God the Creator. And so, the atheist or the Muslim who are accidentally saying true things, they're saying those true things because there is a knowledge of God that God has disclosed in creation order that they may be suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, but because they are participants in God's creation order, they have access to that epistemic knowledge because of them living in that, in that creation order. What I would want to differentiate would be the fact that the unregenerate man does not have knowledge of God the Redeemer. And then moreover, government itself, I think as the apparatus or the mechanism of political judgment, it is not an object of the covenant of redemption. Magistrates and individuals themselves who are in office can be saved. But when you're talking about the office of king or the office of a legislator, the office itself is, in, in my view, not an object of the covenant of redemption, meaning that, that that office is foreclosed from being able to mediate redemptive rule, um, meaning that, that the by nature of what government is, it's a temporal, creaturely, institution, it, it's not meant to mediate redemptive blessing, that it is necessarily foreclosed to those temporal realities pertaining to the order of creation. That means that, again, every single human being, because they're a rational agent, I think has to have some minimal moral knowledge, and to that extent, knowledge of God the Creator, but that does not entail that when someone is saying true things morally, that they are doing that with regard to the realm of redemption. Okay, so you're distinguishing the natural order, creation order, natural revelation from 
redemption and often going with with special revelation. So a, a job. So as you have defined government in sense, you would you would see it as a as something instituted by God. Correct. That they would then have the responsibility of bringing creation order, natural order, natural revelation to bear on society. As they do so, they are a nation that is following a moral order and a Christian order. So would you call that then Christian nationalism or would you still try to shy away from that term? No, I mean, and so I, I just want to be very clear in my own theological integrity here. I, I would not call that Christian nationalism because when I'm talking about what is Christian, that is referring to agents who are objects of the covenant of redemption. And that can only come through the proclamation of the gospel, the reception of the gospel. And as I look at scripture, I see no theological warrant for treating, again, the apparatus of government itself as a mediator of that redemptive covenant. It's creaturely, it's temporal, it's meant to accomplish proximate justice in this age. And again, I think that individuals can have real knowledge of of morality, but that does not make them Christian. And I think that's where we need, and Steve, your own work on progressive covenantalism has been profoundly uh, influential in my own understanding of this and differentiating where different institutions locate themselves in that redemptive storyline. Yeah, Andrew, we could take this in a lot of different directions here, but maybe one that could be fruitful. I'm thinking about some, Doug Wilson has done this, there might be others as well, who have wanted to kind of legislate the Apostles' Creed in a Christian nation. Of course, his understanding of Christian nationalism or mere Christendom is a network of nations that would be, you know, submitting themselves to the triune God as revealed in the Apostles' Creed. But what I'm hearing you say is that it wouldn't be based upon that Christian revelation that would be found in the gospel, found in Scripture, but rather be a recognition of of the creator. And so would you be comfortable with legislating and even calling for, and probably the founding of America had something close to this, but not exactly this, but a recognition that God is creator and that this nation operates underneath God as creator? Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've written about this to some extent, um, a category of what I call civic theism, which is different than civic deism, which is kind of a real diluted understanding of religion the Supreme Court adopted. But civic theism is the understanding that if the nation wants to have any coherent account of morality or human rights, it's going to have to root that in a divine reality. And I think that the duplex cognito day provides that theological justification for where fallen human beings can root a true knowledge of, of, of right and wrong, a true foundation for human rights. So, you know, really the language of in God we trust that we have on our coinage I'm hesitant to say that that's perfect or what I'm necessarily calling for, but I do think that is actually, it's apropos, it's permissible, because again, what's that language doing? I would love to think that it's providing sufficient grounds to protect against abortion and gay marriage. Sadly, it is not. But that, again, the the fact that it hasn't still speaks to the reality of what political orders are in this fallen age. They're still fallen. Um, We're not going to bring about the perfect, redeemed political community. And oftentimes, the things that concerns me with the Christian nationalist conversation is there's this kind of proto-eminatized eschaton where if we just implement the right formula, we're going to get this all figured out. And 
sorry, but when you go and look at the history of how Christian nations have played out, there has never been a Christian nation that has existed in perpetuity. Calvin's Geneva and Kuiper's Netherlands are some of the most secular pagan environments alive today. Now, I'm not laying that squarely on the blame of their particular arrangements. I'm not trying to impute failure uniquely to them. I'm simply saying the fact that those nations have fallen how they have is a recognition of what nations are in this age. They're necessarily fallen. Now, you get to the question of like the Apostles' Creed in our preamble. The problem I have with that is it would be saying things that is not true of all people living in that nation. And so that gets us into what is the value of the label Christian when all the people living in that nation aren't Christian. Now, I will say this, and this is where I would say that I'm, I'm a little bit unique in my Baptist understanding of, of church and state. I would allow for what I call a principle of acknowledgement, which is not a principle of establishment. A principle of acknowledgement could be a situation where the nation state is recognizing as a historical reality that Christianity has played an important role in the founding of that nation. And that's a historical acknowledgement. That is not the same thing as saying that we are a Christian nation. Now, someone might be listening and think that that's just too cute by half, and maybe it is, but it's theologically accurate in my worldview. Undoubtedly, Christianity has influenced America, and I'm thankful for that. But I would not say that America is a Christian nation. It is a nation that has been historically influenced by Christianity. And I think it's fine for our documents to acknowledge that historical indebtedness, and even controversially. And, you know, this is where I would disagree with someone like Richard Land, even. I'm okay with the Ten Commandments being posted in federal buildings. But that's not because I think that America is in a similar covenantal arrangement as Israel. It's because the Ten Commandments as a historic, organic set of principles has undoubtedly influenced our nation. And I'm a political conservative. I'm Burkean, meaning that I want to allow those organic influences to rightly shape us. And I think that that can be done without going so far as to say that we are a Christian nation. Again, that's, that's covenantal language that assumes that these boundary markers, this, this, this geography that we're in, is in covenant with the Redeemer. It's not in covenant with the Redeemer, but it is in covenant with God the Creator. I'm just wondering a question just to follow up here, because yeah. you've been talking about sort of a civic theism and not a deism and, and a historic acknowledgement of, say, the Ten Commandments and Christianity and so on. I mean, how would you respond to someone that's going to say, well, listen, Andrew, um, you're going to need more than that. Uh, you can't just have uh, a general theism. Uh, Islam, for instance, I mean, is theistic. It's not deistic. Yet when you look at the governing of Islam in terms of its moral norms, let's take marriage. I mean, they allow for polygamy. So, so you're going to need not just an appeal to theism, you're going to need an appeal to Christian theism. And you're not going to need an appeal just to how people understand natural law or so on. I mean, eventually you're going to have to bring in some role for scripture uh, to arbitrate between these theisms, which then leads you to Christian nationalism, right? So, I mean, how would you handle some of those? (laughs) No, very very simply. And and again, I'm I'm not trying to be trite by saying this. 
it means that you should have as many Christians in office as you could possibly get. It means that I do think that if you're a non-Christian, you have just as much right to be an office holder. That doesn't mean you should be if you hold to aberrant moral views, but it means that in an imperfect age where we're going to have to adjudicate moral disputes, which is what happens in this eschatological age, it means that um, I want more Christians in office. And I live here in Kentucky. Steve, you live here in Kentucky. One of the things I love to talk about is over the last 12 years, one of my friends um, has formed an organization to help mobilize Christians to get involved in politics. And the number of Christians and pastors who are legislators in Frankfurt is a direct response to what I think is a good theological practice of you have been called to be a, a, a good citizen, to get involved, to steward the institutions of creation order properly. And so, you know, uh, government is not a morally neutral object. It's going to be filled by someone. Why not be filled with Christians? And so my, my concern in this discussion is that I would be heard as saying that I don't really care who's in office, uh, government's fallen, yada, yada, yada. No, government is fallen, but government is still a contested mechanism that has to be filled by someone. I want people with rightly calibrated consciences to be in those offices and to make policies that are in accordance with God's created order. And, and I mean, Steve, to push back just a little bit, if we have a society where it's all Christian legislators, that's still not going to eliminate all the problems of sin in this age. It's still, we're still going to have a society that's marked by imperfection and fallenness. And, and this gets back to this creation order reality of what is politics. Politics is not meant to emanatize the eschaton and to bring about the perfect age. It's always meant to approximate justice. It's meant to pursue the common good. It's meant to restrain evil. And to be very clear, I want as many Christians in office as I can possibly get. But even with that reality being possible, it doesn't mean that we're going to be without problems of our own still. Yeah, that's a good segue to another question, Andrew. And that is, what do you think that the mission of the church ought to be? This certainly relates yeah. to, I think, some of the differences between those who would be post-millennial and those yeah. who would be all-mill or pre-mill. This would be uh, related to what you just talked about, is getting as many Christians in office as possible. Somebody could hear that and think, oh, that's what we need to be doing, what our church needs to be doing. So just going back to the basic question, what is the church's mission as you understand it? Yeah, so let me just throw my... Uh, cards on the table. Um, I'm, I'm millennial in my eschatology. And so as I understand the mission of the church, the mission of the church is to proclaim word and sacrament, although Baptists don't like the term sacrament. We want to disciple people. And one of the ways we disciple people is to see transformed consciences. And transformed consciences are then going to work organically in all contours of society to reflect the principles of righteousness. And so my view of culture transformation is conscience transformation. And so I believe the power of the word of God and the local gathered assembly transforms consciences. People in their individual capacity then step outside the role of the church and fulfill all the various roles of civil society, including people who will potentially be running for office. And it poses no problem for my Baptist views on church and state for a Baptist to be a magistrate 
and to be a, a magistrate who is Baptist, who is voting in accordance with the principles of righteousness. But as that Baptist legislator is voting with the principles of righteousness, it's not going to uniquely bring about the kingdom of God. It's merely going to better reflect those creation order realities. And so to me, the person who's in office, who's a Christian, you know, Obergefell's gone, abortion's gone, and that's totally fine. But when you're thinking about the mission of the church, the mission of the church is directly related to individual discipleship, transformation, and then indirectly related to cultural and political transformation. And so please hear me. I'm not saying that cultural and political transformation is insignificant. I'm saying that that's a byproduct of the reality of what has occurred by individuals whose consciences have been shaped and transformed by the gospel. And so when you say that earlier, you'd mentioned just the Christianization of culture or the Christianization of a nation, that's what you're getting at there, more than the means of Christianizing nations on the way to some golden era in the future. I think that's probably a distinction that needs to be made because many of the arguments being made for Christian nationalism today are riding on the backs of a post-millennial age that is coming in the future. Correct. Yep. And let me ask you another question. So if we talk about the church, what about the state? Uh, again, you mentioned this briefly, but maybe just to define our terms, what is the purpose of the state? You see it as something that God is instituting. You certainly see that in Romans 13 and elsewhere. How would you define that? And then how do you relate the two between those two institutions and their, their spheres of, of authority? Yeah, so the order of creation and the order of redemption factor heavily in my theological worldview and keeping those orders clear, but also how they can at times overlap as well in this kind of already not yet age of inaugurated eschatology. In my view, the state is a creational ordinance or a creational institution meant to execute proximate justice in this age, commensurate with what is possible in this age. And so obviously the government is to praise that which is good and to punish that which is evil. But again, eschatological reality is not within the purview of the state. I do not see in scripture where the state qua state or the government qua government is that recipient or object of the redemptive order or the the, the covenant of redemption, merely because I think that, uh, and I think you see this in the New Testament, this is an age that is passing away. And I think that government is one of those things that is going to be passing away and it is not going to be in the eschaton in the current form that it is right now. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why um, I would say that, that government is absolutely significant and worthy of uh, a Christian's highest calling as a vocation. But even as something that's worthy of their vocation and, and calling, uh, it's not going to mediate God's redemptive blessing because government is just not called to do that type of thing. Uh, I know someone could say, well, what about Psalm 2, that the, the king is to kiss the son? And yes, the king is to kiss the son. The, the, the greatest thing right now that could happen for Joe Biden is if he were to repent and throw himself down at the mercy of Christ. If he were to do that, um, that's not going to fundamentally transform our nation overnight all that means is that Joe Biden, as the person Joe Biden, is redeemed and is regenerate, 
and is going to be a recipient himself in the covenant of redemption and, and, and the future coming eschatological age, that doesn't change um, what his fundamental calling is as a, as a ruler, which is to, to rule justly. And to rule justly does not, in my understanding, mean that one must be only Christian to rule with justice. Uh, if that were the case, you know, I don't know how we think about Jimmy Carter's faith, but, you know, Jimmy Carter is regarded as one of the worst presidents of the United States history. He espouses an evangelical faith. Again, we can debate the contents of that faith. But then you compare Jimmy Carter to someone like Winston Churchill, and Winston Churchill was very much not a Christian and even hostile to the faith. I would choose a thousand Winston Churchills before I would choose a single Jimmy Carter. And that actually makes sense in my theological worldview, where I think in the Christian nationalist worldview that forms, there's an incongruency right there. So when you think of the the state, you've, you've said they should uphold what is good, act justly. You, you've tied that to creation order. I mean, this often comes into the discussion of the law of God, right? So you're in some sense saying they're instituted by God, they should be following God's yeah. law. How would, you, how would you determine the actual content of that law and what would that look like? You know, many people appeal to the Decalogue, but that would involve also yeah. some sense of, of worship, right? I mean, in, in terms of often called the first table, I mean, just reflect on what the content of upholding good is, justice, where is that from? Does that look like the Ten Commandments? If it does, then how is that not establishmentarianism or something like that? Yeah. I mean, so this would be the natural law, in my opinion. And I think that I, I wouldn't, I'm a progressive covenantalist. I would not say that we we base our understanding of the natural law on the Decalogue. I think we need to go prior to that to the covenant of creation. When you go to the new covenant, all of the principles of creation are ratified and affirmed, meaning that they are um, abiding. They're purportedly intelligible that I believe individuals in principle have access to. And I think that even though individuals access them imperfectly and are often rebellious to those principles, uh, the natural law finds a way to reassert itself. You know, a couple examples. After the Holocaust, you have to have the Nuremberg trials because there has to be this sense of cosmic justice. Where does that sense of cosmic justice come from? We can explain that. Fallen human man can't perfectly do that. That's where even in our understanding of, of witness, you want to say to the political orders and the magistrates, you know, the, the quest for justice that you're looking towards, Christians can give specifying clarity to that, that that comes from God. And then even today, take the trans phenomenon. Some of the greatest opponents of the trans madness that's going on are non-Christians. And so that's an example of how the natural law does find a way to assert itself. It's not going to assert itself perfectly. But again, I don't expect in this age to have political communities that are marked by perfect justice. It's often ameliorating and redressing and, and solving problems of, of human ferocity where the task of government comes most clearly. Steve, how would you understand the law and its application in the state? Well, I think I would say something similar uh, to, to what Andrew's doing. I mean, I would see that, um, I mean, I, I do think you need 
both natural and special revelation to, to flesh out the content. And I do think the responsibility of the state, it's not the church, the responsibility of the state is to uphold creation order so that it would look a lot like these, what we would call the second table of the law and upholding the sanctity of human life, upholding marriage, upholding, uh, you know, human sexuality properly and, and, and this type of thing. Then, you know, then it would have to be fleshed out in terms of specifics type of thing. Uh, I don't think it would be. I think I agree with Andrew that you can't uh, enforce a kind of establishmentarian in terms of here's our or here's our church and here's it has to be brought, except it, it is a challenge. We would still have to work with larger Christian worldview to make sense of even even a, a proper sense of government, right? I mean, all of even even a balance of powers, even a, a constitutional order, all of that's really Christian more than any than Islam or Hindu or anything else, right? So we, we do need, you know, a whole argument um, in terms of a, a Christian worldview, but we need to clearly establish the role of the state, the government within that state type of thing from the church, as Andrew has done, and then, you know, start dealing with the specifics uh, before us. Good. Andrew, let me ask a particular question related to just kind of Baptist political theology. Of course, that's the title of the book that you have co-edited. It's come out this year. And in that, you know, I just, you know, cherry pick some of the places that it talks about Christian nationalism. I'm not sure if that was a conversation that was had among you and some of the other editors for that. But it's interesting to, to read that, you know, Malcolm Yarnell begins kind of scoffing at some of the modern proponents of Christian nationalism as amateurish and enthusiasts. And yet, Greg Wills comes around and talks about how some of the Southern Baptists very much in their history were Christian nationalists. And so you look historically, I think it was uh, Barry Hankins affirms that E.Y. Mullins affirms some kind of Christian nationalism. And then Corey Higdon is kind of defining probably something more more current. The Christian nationalism is kind of malevolent. So how should Southern Baptists think about Christian nationalism in their history? And how does that inform the way that we think about this today? So, so I mean, I think Southern Baptists should love their country. They should love America. They should understand the unique role that Protestantism in particular played in the formation of this country. You know, I don't think that we are a Christian nation qua Christian, but we had, and I'm, I'm borrowing the language of Mark David Hall, who I know has uh, is in this series. I think we had a Christian founding, meaning that, again, remove kind of de jure legal realities, de facto cultural, moral, ecological realities. That's formed by uh, a Christian understanding, a Christian worldview. When Steve was talking about that, I, I completely agree. The separation of powers that has to come from an understanding of a Christian view of, of anthropology and the fallenness of, of humankind to then kind of counteract the worst elements of human beings that want to have a power grab. Again, love your country, but I would say you, you don't want to see America as in a unique covenant with the Lord as any other type of, of, of country would be in a unique covenant simply because we are a nation like any other nation, and nations have their temporal role to play in this age. Uh, but then lastly, I'll just simply say, this is a call for active engagement with your world. You know, everywhere I speak, I get the exasperated Christian who raises their hand and says, you know, I'm so sick of liberalism running the show. What do we do to, to fix this? And my response is, well, um, the beauty of the system that we have is you are free to make arguments. You're free to mobilize. 
You're free to organize. You have to create governing majorities. Our problem is not that we don't have good moral answers. We do. We have the best answers. Our problem is that we have to marshal 50 plus one. That's what we have to do. And so that means you have to do the nitty gritty granular act of politics. And, you know, liberals love to accuse conservative Christians of like being too political. In my experience, I don't think that we're political enough. Depending on how you determine the size and scope of how many evangelicals there are in America, let's say that the percentage is upwards of 25%, as some sociologists think. If that's the case, we are arguably the greatest potential political block in the United States. And the fact that we haven't been able to shift the Overton window like we ought to be able to is an indication that actually Christians are not that engaged, as is often the stereotype. So, Andrew, let me ask you kind of a two-part question here, and Steve, feel free to jump in as well. What would you say, first of all, this is the part one, to someone who says that the idea of organizing politicking to be able to gain a majority to vote somebody to office is no longer possible because it seems that those in office are rigging things to make that less possible, certainly using media and things like that, and so that some of those free abilities to, to vote someone out and to vote someone in is not the same as it was, let's say, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. And then secondly, this is the second part, and you can take it however you want, is it requisite that we go back to the founding? It seems as though there's been some questions about this idea of Christian nationalism as even having a, a Christian prince or something that, you know, perhaps we need to have some kind of strong man who would be able to kind of lead our nation in a different direction. Are we beholden to that founding? So we see that there are Christian principles, there are Christian ideas that were influencing that. Just very practically, how would you begin to engage or to help someone to think through these things today? Yeah, and let me just add in there, I mean, you hear a lot of, you know, people get the sentiment that it's just not a fair playing field. So that what we need to do uh, with the political left is to, you know, exert more power, right? Exert more authority to step in and, and take the reins back and then and then we'll bring freedom again or something like that. I mean, so, I mean, it's sort of in the same realm. I mean, you know, how do we go about making this kind of change? So... In the context of whether the system is fair or not, you know, I, I, I would have to be confronted with individual examples to know kind of exactly what you're talking about. But the example I would give, Dave, is, you know, I, I've heard a lot of conservatives frustrated about ballot harvesting is what it's called, I believe. So when something like ballot harvesting gets discussed, if it's legal, my response to conservatives is then you need to be doing ballot harvesting better. You may not like ballot harvesting. You may not like the current system that we have in place. You can either change the laws on the one hand, which requires mobilization, or you can get smarter and, you know, beat the left at its own game. There's nothing that stops you from taking advantage of, of laws if you're going to, you know, follow them lawfully, so to speak. Now, the second question, should we go back to the founding? We're not going to go back to the founding because we have an entirely different America culturally and demographically than what the founding had. So my own particular political philosophy would be articulated in the work of Robert George and his volume, Making Men Moral. He argues for a moral perfectionism that accords with the kind of apparatus of deliberative democracy. And so what Robert George's volume does, and I, I highly recommend Making Men Moral. It's very technical, but it's a very influential book. And what makes that book so significant 
is it tries to reject kind of Rawlsian liberalism that says you can't have religion playing any role whatsoever, but it also rejects that you have to have kind of a heavy-handed authoritarian source for political authority to be legitimate. And so it champions the Constitution. It champions a high value for deliberation on moral goods. The question I have to wrestle with is, is modern day America an America that can deliberate about moral goods? And I, I don't have a lot of optimism that we can, but you know, I don't think that we need to go being nostalgic, even though I love and honor our past. But I also don't think that we need to cast off the constitutional order. And um, as one of my friends, Josh Abatoy, who is a friend of mine, but I do disagree with him, you know, he, he said jokingly, we just need a Protestant Franco. With all due respect to Josh, who I, who I do like, I reject that as well. I am suspicious of any authoritarian impulse whatsoever, simply because of my theological moorings that says any attempt to put power in the hands of one person apart from Jesus Christ, that's not going to go well. That's good. Let me go back to the beginning. We're going to finish up here in just a second. You defined Christian nationalism for us. You talked a little bit about that. But at the same time, as you've made some of these cases and you would make your case for Christian nationalism as being something where you would not want to have an establishmentarian view of the, of the government, of the nation. But there have been some who've kind of equated a Baptist political theology with something like a post-war consensus. Yeah. Can you explain what that is and why that's not what you're saying? Yeah. So, I mean, there's kind of this like just trope online that if you're a Baptist, you're almost kind of this Rawlsian, Lockean, Enlightenment champion who thinks that the separation of church and state means the separation of religion and politics, and that you are championing kind of a strict separationist jurisprudence out of the 1940s and 1950s from the Supreme Court. That is just not the case whatsoever. My theological foundations for the separation of church and state begins from a theological reality that I do not see the mission of the church and the mission of the state as coterminous. And if they are not coterminous, that means there has to necessarily be a differentiating of their jurisdictions, of their competencies, and of their authorities. And so this is not calling for a naked public square. Um, this is not calling for, you know, Baptist Joint Committee, James Dunn, liberal Baptist views on church and state whatsoever. This is simply acknowledging a theological reality that I see no evidence in Scripture where the state has been given the keys of the kingdom to pronounce realities as Christian or non-Christian. But it would seem to require, and I think this is a challenge for the church, is that if we want to see you know, a common order and a moral order that's enforced that is largely Christian, then the church is going to have to be the church. We're going to have to see evangelism. We're Amen. going to have to see conversions. Uh, we're going to have to see people's hearts changed. And as you say, in discipleship, their consciences affected. And we're going to have to see them go into the world Amen. Uh, and uh, live as Christians and then seek to influence 
the larger society. That may not be the mission of the church, but they are responsible in their workplaces. They're responsible to serve as, as uh, governing officials and so on. So it does really require a, a huge responsibility of the church uh, to see salt and light and to see, in some sense, God's common grace at work and not you know, him pulling off his common grace and seeing what I'm afraid uh, sometimes we think we're seeing today is is an actual destruction of the nation in terms of God's judgment. So, so there is a real role the church plays, doesn't it? Oh, no. I mean, so my view of cultural transformation in this kind of broader Christian nationalist discussion, I want America to be as Christian as we can possibly be. For me, that is a bottom-up reality rather than a top-down reality. And that begins where Baptist theology begins, which is in the local assembly with the centrality of the preached word and believing that it is the preached word that changes hearts and then transforms consciences and that that reality has not been placed in the hands of the state and where it has. Um, And we can have a whole another conversation about the problems that I associate with kind of de jure Christian nationalism. Where it has, it has never brought about the renewal of the nation. It has never brought about the renewal of the church that has been promised. And, you know, just to maybe close this out, right now there is a court case going on in Finland and Scandinavia where a member of parliament cited a Bible verse in June from the book of Romans during Finland's Pride Month and is now on trial for hate speech. And the question then is raised, well, why is that a particularly important reality? Well, because Finland has a state church. It has a national church. It has a Christian establishment. What value is a Christian nation that is literally persecuting fellow Christians? Yeah, that's a good question that leads us not only back to the Bible, but to prayer as well right? That the Lord would have mercy on that minister there in Finland, would have mercy on our nation, that really we desire for our nation to be filled with Christians, to be, you know, in service to the Lord, who is the the God overall. But that also begins just in the local church. One of the things I'm just struck by is the fact that it's hard to have a Christian nation when we can't have Christian churches. Uh, And so many churches today are not actually abiding by the revealed word that they may claim to, or have, you know, gotten rid of. And so certainly that is the, the beginning point there with all sorts of ripple effects into our local community, our states, our nation, and beyond. So that's certainly something for us to continue to talk about, to pray about, and to work towards. So, Andrew, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today, brother. We'll continue to talk through these things. Thanks, guys. Absolutely. And Steve, thank you, brother. Good to have you on again and talk through this as well. Yeah, important issues, and uh, we need to really think through them carefully. And Andrew, thank you for uh, helping us think about this. Thank you, guys. And friends, thank you for listening today. All month long, we'll be offering interviews on the subject of Christian nationalism. These interviews include church historians, theologians, and pastors, all of whom are listed on our website. Our aim this month is to provide definitions and clarifications from all those who are pushing for and pushing against Christian nationalism. Next month, we'll begin analyzing some of these arguments and offering many articles and essays outlining a constructive vision of church and state. Until then, enjoy the podcasts. And if you find them helpful, please pass them on to others. You can also subscribe to our podcast, follow Christ Overall on Twitter, or reach out to us by email. 
Our ministry depends upon the generous donations of friends as well. And we would also accept your cheerful gift as it helps us to continue to bring these resources to you for free. All of these things can be found at our website, ChristOverall.com. For now, wherever you stand on Christianity and culture, church and state, Christian nationalism or not, let us remember that Christ is Lord, and so in all things, let us exalt Christ. Christ.